For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, and then we're going to extend on into chapter 3, verse 3. I don't know how many times I've said this already, but these chapter divisions in the Bible, they're synthetic. So really, Paul continues his train of thought into chapter 3. Let's begin with the passage we cited at the end of our teaching last week, Romans 12, verse 2, where he says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. One of the things that God wants to do once he indwells us with the Holy Spirit, the moment we receive Christ, forge a relationship with him, is that he wants to start this transformation process. And we talked last week about how the, for, the first part of this entails resisting conformity, that there's incredible pressure in our culture and in our world to conform to the values of our world, and that it requires us resisting that, but that there's also this other aspect, too, of submitting ourselves to God's transforming power. And he does this primarily through the Holy Spirit. So we want to talk about what that looks like and what it means to progress towards spiritual maturity. One of the things that you notice when you study the Bible is that God doesn't want us to just conform based on our outward behavior. He doesn't want us to just do these different things to make ourselves look good. When inwardly we have a lot of problems and a lot of turmoil, instead, he works in the reverse order. He wants to transform us from the inside out, transforming our values and our desires, which then manifests itself in our actions. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 and 15. We, we read this last week, but I think it's pertinent to the passage we're going to be looking at tonight. Paul says, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual man, however, makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. So first of all, he talks about the man without the spirit and um, he uses the word sukikos, which we introduced to you guys last week if you were here, the Greek term. And it comes from the root Greek word suke, which means soul or life. And so this describes the kind of person who lives their life based on their natural understanding, human wisdom. Um, in the book of Jude, the author actually elaborates a little bit on this. And gives us information about what this kind of life looks like. Jude 19 says, These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. In other words, the man or person without the Spirit of God, the natural man, in other translations, they merely follow their natural instincts. They look around at the world and they sort of pick and choose certain values that they think fits with their lives, or they may go based on their gut feeling and their desires to determine the course of life they, they may decide to live. 
And so the man without the spirit or the natural person really is the kind of person driven by their instincts, their, their human nature. And, um, you know, Paul says that this person cannot accept the things of God, that they have the inability to see things from a spiritual perspective because they don't have the spirit and therefore cannot appraise the things of the spirit. And, you know, he's not saying that the person without the spirit of God can't understand the things in the world. Obviously, there are many brilliant non-Christian people in the world who have a vast understanding of the world. He's not saying that. But the Bible teaches that there is more than just the natural, the material world, that there's actually a spiritual dimension and that the person with the spirit of God actually is able to see reality clearly because they get the full picture. They can see how God intervenes in certain cases and how God is working in the world. And so, really, the natural person, when they study the Bible or when they hear spiritual thoughts, often they can't understand it in the sense that they can't apply it to their lives. It doesn't impact them because they don't possess the spirit. It's kind of like, you know, if you brought a deaf man to a symphony, you know, they would not be able to understand the beauty of what they're, they're hearing or what's being played. Then he contrasts this, though, with the spiritual man. And um, again, we're going to throw around some Greek terms here. This, this person, Paul refers to as the pneumatikos. And this um, comes from the uh, Greek word pneuma, where we get the word spirit or breath. And this describes the person who possesses the spirit of God. But more than that, we'll see that Paul actually equates this individual with somebody who possesses spiritual maturity. That indeed, you know, when we first begin a relationship with God, we almost go through uh, spiritual infancy and then progress and grow towards spiritual maturity over time that there are a lot of things that we have to learn about what God says, and that as we obtain more and more of what he has to say, we grow in spiritual maturity. Then he says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, Brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready yet for it. So he talks about a third person, okay? The person who he, who this translation says is worldly. And this word in Greek is the word sarkinos. And it simply means, um, you know, um, it, it means of the world. But, you know, it doesn't really give us a ton of information until you look at the next phrase, which is an apposition. Um, which is that they are mere infants in Christ. So apparently these Sarkinos are people who are brand new Christians, people who for the very first time have forged a relationship with God and are starting now to experience his presence in their lives. And so we all sort of go through this phase of spiritual infancy. You know, we 
come to a place where we realize my life isn't working out and this course that I'm pursuing is just leading to more and more misery and a lack of fulfillment. And eventually we come to a place where we realize, okay, I need something different. It's just madness that I'm pursuing this course and yet getting nowhere. And so God enters our life when we receive Christ and we begin this process of spiritual maturation. But at first we, we start off as, um, so to speak, babies in Christ, you know, which I think when you, when you call somebody immature or they're being a baby, usually that, that carries sort of a pejorative feel to it, right? You'd be like, you're being so immature. Um, that's usually a bad thing. But it wouldn't really be that bad if you were saying to, you know, a two-year-old, he's immature, right? You're just stating a fact. You're describing reality. And so in the same way, when we begin our relationship with God, there are certain things that we don't understand. And we need to go through a maturing process. For example, one of the things that you'll notice if, if you're a brand new Christian is that there are a lot of competing voices out there claiming to speak for God, and it gets really confusing. And so what we find, according to the Bible, is that brand new baby Christians are often susceptible to false teaching. And if you read the New Testament, the Bible really harps on the importance of learning God's truth in order to uh, fight off this false teaching. For example, um, in Ephesians 4, verse 14, uh, Paul says of these believers who are progressing in their, in their knowledge of truth, that once they get to a certain place, that they will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craft, craftiness of men and their de deceitful scheming. So it's interesting that he equates spiritual maturity with more depth in our understanding of God's truth. Now, <clears throat> when you look back there at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11, it's interesting. Paul doesn't use this word, child or infant, uh, neros, in a uh, negative way. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, though, I put away childish things. So he's not saying that it's bad to be a child. He's just saying that at a certain point in your maturity that you need to put away some of these childish things that you used to do. That's just the normal course of growing and maturing as a person. Um, you know, in addition to this, I think that often young Christians are susceptible to feeling confused about the Bible, you know, Certain aspects or certain parts of the Bible seem really confusing. And so, brand new Christians, they need help learning how to interpret the Bible, trying to locate where, what the original author was trying to say to the original audience, and then from there, extracting principles by which they can apply to their lives. And so, that's, that's, a, that's a process. That's not going to happen overnight. It takes time. It takes some, some investment to learn that. Not to mention, I think that, you know, we have a lot of values. We have a lot of ideas that we bring into our Christian life 
that often stand opposed to what God says. You know, typically we have been living a self-first sort of life where we look at our lives and we, we look at the world and we think that everything sort of revolves around us. And God says, it's just the opposite. You know, you're just a small part of the universe. And so you need to see your place in the world. You need to see your place in relationship to me. And so that takes some time for God through the Bible and through revelation, through the spirit changing our minds to start to see the world differently. It takes time. Then he says, indeed, you are not ready for this solid food. He says, for you're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? So this word happens to be another type of person, different than the worldly person there in verse 1. It's from the same word, uh, root word, um, sarks, which means flesh. And this is the sarkikos, as opposed to the sarkinos, okay? Um, and Paul uses this in a negative sense. So in verse 1, he's saying, you're mere infants. He's not, he's not critiquing them, right? You are baby believers. It makes sense that you would act this way. It would make sense that you would think this way. But he's saying now, after some time walking with God, you are still worldly. Sarkikos. That is, you are in a perpetual state of spiritual infancy. And that's not a good place to be. You know, when you think about some Christians, you know, you encounter some Christians that have been following God for years, decades. And it's interesting when you encounter them every several years, it almost seems like they haven't really changed that much. You're like, you know, you're kind of the same person. Last time I talked to you, you were talking about the same things. You seem disinterested in the things of God. And really, it's the same now. Whereas you meet some people who have been following God for maybe even one or two years. And it's almost like the difference between when they first came to Christ and where they're at now is just night and day. And so it raises the question, what's the difference between these two people? How come there are some people who seem to never really progress, who never seem to really grow in their relationship with God, and yet there are some who seem to progress um, incredibly fast? Well, <clears throat> I think it raises this question. How long does it take for someone to grow out of spiritual infancy? The answer depends, right? Because if you're like me, you're bringing a lot of baggage into your relationship with God. You know, if you're like me, you've done a lot, maybe a lot of things wrong in your life. There are a lot of things that you regret doing before you met Christ. You know, partying, just doing really stupid things, things that damaged your life. And so, you know, for me, it took several years. So, I, you know, people look at me and they think, oh, you know, he must have had it easier. He must have progressed quickly in his spiritual life. That's not the case. I mean, it took, it took probably, you know, almost six years before I started influencing people for God as a leader. And it took all of that time for God to change me. But it seemed agonizingly slow at the time. 
And so the rate in which you'll grow depends a lot on where you're coming from, your family background, your age, lots of different factors. But most importantly, it depends on your willingness and your desire to listen to God and to devote yourself to God's truth. So there are a lot of different factors, and I think, you know, people are different, and we need to acknowledge that. Sometimes we feel frustrated that we're not moving fast enough, and yet God looks at your life, and he he says, so it took you 20 years to just completely destroy your life. You think I'm going to fix that in six months? (laughs) Come on, it's going to take a lot to untangle that. And so I think, you know, we need to settle in and trust that God has a plan and he has his timing for how he wants to change our lives. But we need to be ready to respond when he's calling on us to take steps forward towards spiritual growth. You know, age matters as well. You know, you think about an eight-year-old coming to Christ that's going to look pretty different than somebody who's 22 years old coming to Christ. You know, an eight-year-old's prefrontal cortex isn't, isn't fully developed. So, you know, all of their basic instincts are completely uncorked. So it's going to be a lot harder for them to, to you know, apply self-control compared to somebody who's 25, right? And so really, there, there's a lot of variables here. But I think it's interesting that Paul gives us a general time frame for what he expected, at least for the Corinthian believers. That's very helpful. So we know that Paul came into town there at Corinth around 80, 50, or 51. He writes this letter at about 80, 54, or 55. So there was about a four-year span from the time that they came to Christ until he writes this letter. And yet there's this expectation that they would have arrived come to a place of spiritual maturity, which I think is very interesting. These guys, in particular, lived a pretty hard life. You know, we studied a couple weeks ago that the Corinthian people, they were all about partying. Um, They were sexually immoral. They had a lot of problems. And yet, Paul expected for them to be relatively mature by this time. Secondly, you know, Paul isn't saying um, that the spiritual or the the mature person will never stumble or fall. You know, I think in the course of our spiritual growth, we're going to have setbacks. There are going to be times where we sort of regress back to our old way of doing things. And that's just sort of the, the natural course that we follow in spiritual growth, that sometimes we'll take three steps forward and then two steps back. But the hope is that over the long haul, we're going to see real spiritual change. You know, looking at your spiritual life might look like a stock market graph, right? So you have your three months. It's like, it's been pretty up and down this three months. You know, I've had a lot of problems. Um, I've reached some spiritual heights, but there are some spiritual lows too. Uh, And I don't want to talk about them, right? So... (laughs) You look at that period of time and you're like, doesn't look so good. Doesn't look like I made that much ground, especially the last, you know, couple weeks there. Look at that. Trending downward, right? But then you move on to a one-year period. Things start to look a little bit different. 
you start to see that there is a slight trajectory. Things are moving at least in the right direction. And then on to the five-year and 10-year period. And so even though we encounter setbacks, even though we have times where we regress, even though there are times where it seems like we're stuck for some time, and, you know, we're, we're, we're on the ground pounding our fist and, and uh, you know, throwing a fit because God isn't giving us what we want and we think we're completely losing it. When you look at the big picture, it appears that we're actually growing with God. And that's an amazing thing. Thirdly, by contrast, you know, some people teach that you attain spiritual maturity through some sort of dramatic experience. You see this especially in Eastern thinking, such as Buddhism. You know, the idea is that you have this experience of enlightenment. And at that moment, you see reality for what it is, and your life is completely transformed that moment. You, you experience liberation from your desires, which cause all the different suffering in your life. You know, you see this even among Christians in different Christian circles where people will teach that spiritual growth is all about this crisis experience that, that you come to a place where you're tired of your, your life, where you're living selfishly or you're falling into this pattern of wrongdoing that's destructive, and then boom, in a moment, God just changes your life. Well, that doesn't fit with my experience at all. You know, my experience is that God gradually changes me. That often it's over a period of months and years that I start to see real change. And usually I don't even see it myself. Most of the time it's when people who I encounter maybe every once in, once in a while, every once, you know, one year or two years who comment like, man, you're just like a different person from the last time I talked to you. And you're like, doesn't feel that way, you know? Um, just recently, somebody sent me an email, forwarded an email that I sent out from 2008. Um, <laughs> and if you um, couldn't guess, it was uh, something, some choice words that I had for somebody. And uh, they sent it because it was, it was slightly humorous, but I, I looked at that email and I'm just like, man, I was a lot sharper, like a lot more coarse in the way that I dealt with people back then. And uh, I started asking people like, was I a little bit rougher like, you know, four or five years ago when you knew me? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, in my own head, in my own skin, I feel like I'm the same person. And yet gradually God has changed my life. You know, you see this really in the New Testament as well where guys like the Apostle Peter, you know, he had so many ups and downs. You know, the night before Jesus was crucified, he denies Jesus three times. Then sometime later, he preaches one of the greatest sermons ever given, leading thousands of people to Christ. And then shortly thereafter, sometime later, you know, he falls back into his hypocrisy and decides that he's not going to associate with these non-Jewish believers because he's afraid of what the Jewish Christians might think of him. And so you look at Peter's life and it's just like there are just these stages of growth, but then he also experienced setbacks. 
And I think we're going to see the same thing as well. Now, Paul gives us two signs of perpetual spiritual immaturity from this passage. First of all, he points to jealousy and quarreling. He says in verse 3, For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly, sarkikos? Are you not perpetually uh, in this state of spiritual infancy when you act this way? I think that's very interesting that he would include this because a lot of times in Christian circles, people will point to like drug abuse or, you know, sexual immorality as a sign of spiritual immaturity. And yet the people who seem to be right livers who are, you know, reading their Bible, showing up to meetings and saying the right things, but are constantly conflicted with the people around them fighting all the time. We wouldn't regard those people as spiritually immature. And yet right here, Paul says that, you know, when you constantly get into fights, if you find yourself embroiled in conflict constantly in drama, you can say whatever you want in public and pretend that you're actually mature, but you're actually acting like a spiritually immature person. Secondly, he points to perpetual ignorance of God's truth. He says in Hebrews 5, uh, uh, the author in Hebrews 5, right in the middle of talking about this really deep truth about Melchizedek, this Old Testament figure, and how he becomes sort of a type of what Christ would fulfill. The author stops in the middle of this and says, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So he says, you know, when you're constantly drinking milk, which he describes as the word of God, just the basics of Christianity, he says, if you're perpetually stuck trying to understand those things and you're not progressing to more, then that is a sign of spiritual immaturity. That you're stuck, you're not moving forward. And I think that's interesting because, you know, in modern day Christianity, I think that there's sort of this anti-intellectualism where it's all about, you know, having that experience, feeling blessed, going to a sermon and uh, having the pastor tell you things that are going to be uplifting. And yet, Paul says, and the author of Hebrews says that the basis for spiritual maturity is actually growth in our knowledge of God's truth and understanding. And again, we're not saying that drinking milk or understanding the basics, that that's a bad thing. You know, when you have a brand new Christian, they need to learn the basics of Christianity. You know, what does the Bible say about your new relationship with God? How, how do you grow? What are some basic steps you can take toward growing in your relationship with God? In fact, I've met people who have embarked on studies with brand new, brand new Christians, reading 1,000 page systematic theologies with them, and I'm like, what are you doing? 
That's like giving, you know, a baby a hamburger and being like, eat this. You're like, what's the baby going to do with that? Nothing, right? But at a certain point, though, you would expect that when somebody is progressing and maturing that they're going to start to eat solid food. Think about it the opposite way. You know, imagine if you were on a middle school basketball team, right? And um, you have halftime. And so one of your teammates runs up into the stands and finds his mom. And she then starts to breastfeed him. (laughs) So once he's finished, you know, he runs back down and joins you at the sidelines. And you're like, dude, what was that all about? (laughs) And he's like, what? I'm just getting a snack. (laughs) Right. It's not cool, right? That's my point. Um, At a certain point, drinking milk and not progressing towards solid food, it's just there's something wrong with that. It's an indication that there's something unhealthy going on. And so likewise, that's something that we should see is that not only are we growing and that our lives are transforming, but our knowledge of what God says is actually growing as well. You know, there are some signs of spiritual maturity as well should we, we should look at. First of all is spiritual discernment. Paul says this in 2 verse uh, 12 through 14, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things. Those two words there, discerned and judgments, same word, which means to appraise. And so the spiritually mature person is able to see the world from the reality or through the lens which God gives us. We're able to see the world from a different grid or a different viewpoint, a different paradigm. You know, in the world, I think uh, people have a very limited view of the world. And from that, try to extrapolate truth based on their limited experience. You know, you look at this and you think, okay, what is that? You know, you think, um, it could be an image of gold under a microscope, possibly. Um, it could be, you know, a granite countertop, possibly, Right? Maybe it is um, worn leather. I don't know, right? So you're just endlessly speculating about what this is. And yet, you wouldn't realize that this is from a famous painting, um, you know, by Gustav Klimt, The Kiss, and that it's a small section from that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, culture. It's awesome. (laughs) But, you know, I think that a lot of times we approach the world this way. You know, we look at the world and we see, we look at our experiences. And we, we think to ourselves, my experience tells me that I should do these things. And to a certain extent, that helps us. But, you know, we often run into cases where our experience cannot inform us when we're making decisions. 
At other times, we look to, uh, you know, inner experiences or uh, feelings as a driving force for how we live our lives. And yet, to be honest with ourselves, we realize that our feelings often change. It's different one day than it is another. And so is that a reliable guide for living our lives? You know, some of us are experts in, in our certain discipline that we're studying. And so we might take that and use it as, you know, a basis for creating some sort of reductionistic view of the world. And yet we would have to admit to ourselves that human knowledge is very limited in comparison to all that there is out in the universe. And so we only have a small portion or piece of reality, and yet we're trying to stretch that and fit it over all of reality. It's arrogance is what it is to think that we know what is actually true based on our own speculation and human wisdom. And yet God offers an alternative saying, I am the one who created the universe. And I want to, I want to reveal to you the truth through my written word, the Bible. And so when we start reading the Bible and looking at the world through that lens, it gives us a different picture of reality. It opens our eyes not only to the larger context of what God is doing, but also to the spiritual reality that's there. Also, another sign of spiritual maturity would be the ability to digest deeper spiritual truths. In 1 Peter 2, verse 1 and 2, Paul, or Peter uses uh, milk, not in a pejorative way, saying that it's only for the immature, but he's saying that this is something that uh, represents God's truth that we should strive or long for. He says, therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow spiritually. In other words, there is a connection between our desire to learn God's word and our ability to retain it that then relates to our spiritual growth. That there's a correlation between those things. And, um, you know, I remember reading this for years, thinking that when, when Peter says that like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, I thought that that was a description of what babies do. And it is. That they long for milk. But if you look at the, the grammar behind this, the word long is actually in the active imperative. In other words, Peter is saying long for it. He's saying you should long for it. It's something that we should try to do. And so one of the things that we see in spiritual transformation is that there is this essential replacement where as we consume God's word, it gradually replaces our values and desires over time. That we start to see the world differently. You know, I remember um, when I was a little kid, um, my parents used to buy Spam all the time. How many people have eaten Spam before? I feel sorry for you. You're a damaged person, okay? <laughs> but um, I used to love this stuff. And, um, 
you know, I would, I would consume this stuff in the poundfuls as a young kid. And, you know, I don't know why my parents really gravitated toward this stuff. I mean, they, they just had a predisposition toward salty, processed food that looked like cat food. Um, but, you know, I remember I had this awful experience where right before I, I consumed a bunch of spam and then um, came down with the stomach flu. And for hours, I was puking up spam <laughs> through my nose, right? It was coming so fast, and so much of it was coming out of me, it was, it was almost like it was looking for different holes to come out of. <laughs> and so, you know, after a few hours of being a spam sprinkler, um, you know, from that moment on, I just stopped eating spam. Like, that was it. But shortly after that, uh, somebody introduced me to prime rib. And uh, at first, I, I wasn't sure if I liked it, you know, because it, it was like medium, and so there was a little bit of blood. And, but um, my, my parents, you know, they were like, you should try this. And, and so I kept eating it, and I started to, to grow to like it. And so whenever I have the money, I just always am just consuming as much prime rib as I possibly can get my hands on. But my point is this, that, um, you know, what happens is when we come into a relationship with God, you know, all these things that we desired, those, those values that we had, um, you know, we realize that those things have lost sort of their grip on us. The things that we thought were so amazing, so fun, once we come to Christ, we start to see things differently. And over time, what happens is we actually start to enjoy the things that God says we should love and that we should devote our lives to in his word. I remember feeling that when I became a Christian, for, uh, you know, at first, just uh, the sense that like the things that I was doing, uh, they lost their appeal to some extent. And the things of God started to, to really become exciting and fulfilling. I think the other thing is that you'll see that there's an expanding knowledge of God's truth. That over time, you're, you're starting to learn more and more about what God says. And there's a lot of things that the Bible talks about. You know, the contents of Scripture contain lots of different things, such as God's plan in human history. Contrary to the Eastern way of thinking, history is not cyclical, it's linear. In other words, there is a definite beginning and a definite end. And so God reveals to us the course of human history, that it's headed a certain way. Also, God reveals his nature. Remember last week we talked about how one of the most difficult things for us to comprehend is God's goodness. And God, through the Bible, reveals how gracious and how loving he is. Also, he explains the state of the world. He explains the, the origin of evil in the world, that it was actually a product of human choice and rebellion. And he also describes the nature of sin, the mentality of sin that often drives us. He also talks about ethics. You know, we, we face very complicated situations. And, you know, there are a number of principles that the Bible lays out, but 
God prioritizes certain things, values over others. And so that becomes helpful in trying to make decisions about our lives. In addition to that, God reveals to us the nature of spiritual growth like he does in this passage. He talks about the mission of the church, our purpose here on earth once we receive Christ. And also he tells us about how to have healthy relationships, how to love people, how to break out of this selfish way of life that we've been living for, you know, 20 years. In addition to that, uh, he, he not only gives us the content of scripture, but then uh, gets us to the point where we're able to apply that to our lives, where we're able to take these principles and we're starting to see how they relate to us. And once we do that, we're left with an action step. You know, uh, you meet a lot of people who learn a lot about the Bible. They can express to you how it relates to our world or how it relates to people. And yet, it looks like their lives haven't really changed all that much. Why? It's because they haven't taken action. And that's an important ingredient. God wants us to take an active role in our spiritual transformation. It's sort of like a partnership that he wants to embark upon with us. And so he's not going to just transform us without our consent or without us being, you know, uh, on board with it. He wants, us, he wants us to entrust ourselves to him. But it also requires the power of the Holy Spirit. No, no amount of self-will or determination or grit is ever going to change your life. And uh, if you don't believe that, keep trying to just, you know, will yourself to stop doing that thing again. See how that goes for you. It doesn't work. It requires the power of God working in and through us to change us so that we can experience this mental transformation that Paul describes in Romans 12, where God slowly helps us to see the world the way he sees it. That we, we start to value the things that he values. That we start to love people in the way that he loves them. Now, it's interesting, the Corinthians were missing both the content and the application, and that was what was essentially stunting their spiritual growth. And so, you know, if you're here and maybe you're, you're a new Christian, I think it's important for you to start learning about what God says and trying to apply that and taking small steps of faith. And you're going to start to see real growth in your life when you do that. Now, the last thing I want to address here is what about other sources of divine input? You know, you have some people who say, um, you know, the mark of spiritual maturity is that you're able to have these uh, spiritual gifts that you can express, such as prophesying or speaking in tongues, things like that. Um, or, you know, what, what, if, what if I get God speaking directly to me? You know, who, who's to say that I'm wrong in those cases? Or, you know, I've got this favorite preacher that I listen to every week, and I just trust that what he has to say or what she has to say, that they're probably right about what the Bible has to say. Well, 
Um, I wouldn't entrust myself to some person. You know, if, if you're doing that, whether you're listening to somebody who you just are like, well, I'll just listen to them. They seem like they know what they're talking about. If you're, if you're doing that to me, um, you're susceptible. That's a problem. You know, I think that there is a place for experiencing divine input, but it needs to correspond with what God says. It needs to fit with his revelation that he's given to us through his written word. And so everything that you hear, whether it's what a person says, what you read in a book, all of those things need to be filtered through what God says in his written word. So let's draw some conclusions. I think, first of all, God wants to completely restructure your view of reality. We are fundamentally skewed in the way that we see the world. And, you know, if you're here tonight and maybe you don't know God in a personal way, you know, God wants to transform your thinking. He wants to change your life from the inside out. No amount of discipline that you apply to your life is ever going to fully change you. And it's certainly not going to release you from slavery to this desire or this struggle that you have in your life. The only thing that can give you true freedom is a relationship with God and experiencing his truth. Secondly, when you meet a mature believer, you sense the difference. You'll notice that the way they think about things, the way they talk about things, it's different. And it's appealing. It's something that, you know, if you spend time with people who are spiritually mature, you want to be around them. You want to spend time with them. You want, you want to become like them in a way. Third, when you look back at how you viewed the world a couple years ago, you wonder how you could have ever looked at it that way once you, sp- once you start this, this walk with God where you're growing. God transforms your life, but it requires your cooperation. And so maybe, you know, you're in a place where you feel stuck. Like, you're not sure, um, you know, where you're at. You feel like you're just spinning your tires in the mud. You're not going anywhere. Maybe the reason why you're not really growing is, number one, you're not pursuing the truth of God and learning more. Or maybe you're not taking action upon the things that he's already told you. You know, not, God's not going to give you more if you have decided that you're not going to deal with or act upon what he's already given you. And so I'd urge you to, to take that step of faith and act upon what he says. All right, why don't we uh, just turn to God here. Lord, we know that ultimately you're trying to conform us into the image of your son to become a more loving person, to become a more sacrificial person. And I pray that as we grow in our relationship with you, that you would give us the mind of Christ that we can see the world through his perspective and to uh, see people through his perspective as well. I pray for those of us, Lord, who are without the Spirit, who uh, may have never forged a relationship with you and uh, maybe are tired of uh, just this spin cycle of you know, failing and struggling and hoping that things are going to get better and failing again, that um, they'd come to realize that They need a source of power to really change them other than themselves. 
And that, that only that power comes through your spirit indwelling them. And I pray that uh, they would um, come to you in just humility and, and receive the free gift that Jesus offers through the cross. And uh, we thank you for anyone who did that. And I pray that uh, for those of us who are trying to follow you, that we would uh, hang in there and continue to try to progress toward maturity in Christ. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.